KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. The coronavirus pandemic has caused much of society to sort of grind to a halt. There's a lot less travel. And if you've been driving anywhere, you've probably noticed how few cars there are out there. It's definitely a little weird to be on the road at 830 in the morning and the highway's just empty. So all of this sort of begs the question, what kind of impact is coronavirus social distancing having on the environment? I reached out to Franco Montalto to find out. He's a professor of civil, architectural, and environmental engineering at Drexel University. And I basically wanted to get his thoughts on what kind of environmental changes are happening while we're at home, both on a large scale, what's happening around the world, and what kind of changes we're seeing right here in the Philadelphia area. I want to start off by just making the point that it's really difficult to define the environment as distinct from the human system and the economic system that we have around it, right? So I I look at the environmental implications of COVID-19 in a broader context that considers sort of inequity, the economic uh, factors that are driving things, um, you know, the climatic and and, and physical context in which we're all working. So I, I don't look at the environment as divorced from this sort of broader system, societal context that, that we're in. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of examples of why that is important to do, because there are sort of ripple effects. You know, you may look at some aspects, some environmental indicators and say, oh, those are pointing in the right direction right now. You know, so, for example, there's been uh, a lot of uh, satellite imagery from around the world looking at nitrogen dioxide levels. Um, which are related to respiratory disease and even some research saying that uh, the fewer respiratory deaths that may result due to the improved air quality, so the reduction in deaths, it could be greater than any new deaths associated with COVID. So you look at things like that and you start to say, oh, the environment is doing well, but you know, not all of the indicators are good. You know, so you could look at things like increases in medical waste or some of the policy implications, environmental policy implications of COVID. So there's been, in some places, a suspension, suspension of recently introduced bans on single-use plastics. The federal government in the U.S., for example, has relaxed environmental compliance and monitoring standards. So the environment is kind of in the middle. It's sort of a, a broker of a lot of these other relationships. Um, there's a lot of things about the environmental impacts of COVID that are really still very difficult to evaluate. You know, for example, now there's a sort of shift in where people are, right? People used to be in office spaces and now they're in their homes. And that's changing the impacts on energy grids, water supply, sewers. It could be, as my, my colleague from Stevens Institute, Phil Orton, has been asking the question is, does that, expo- does that shift our exposure to environmental risks? For example, flooding. You know, if now People were in office buildings and now they're in their neighborhoods. If a flood were to occur, what's the difference? There is a difference in risk because people are in different places. What is that risk? We don't know. 
public transit systems, for example, we're not paying to use public transit because we're home. So what's the impact going to be on public transit systems in the long term? My uh, a colleague here at Drexel, Richardson Dilworth, has been asking whether those uh, public transit systems, will they go bankrupt? Will they be bailed out? Um, you know, will this transition us to more ride sharing? And what are the implications of that? Uh, you know, that's automobile focused in, in many cases. You know, of course, this massive reduction in mobility has led to plummeting oil costs, which is uh, less, you know, less energy usage. And that is what's behind a lot of the, the improvement in air quality. And it's also a massive reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, which we've, of course, been wanting and needing in the context of uh reducing the impacts of climate change. The question, though, is are those reductions in emissions going to remain? Are there, is this a transitory thing and we're going to bounce back to, you know, we're going to try to make up for lost ground and have a massive increase in emissions later on? Or is our response to COVID globally going to take advantage of this situation to keep emissions down uh, and, 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 and do so at levels that we need. You know, one thing that's really interesting is there's been research out that's saying how radical our change in lifestyle has been and the emissions reductions that have been associated with this radical global sudden shift in lifestyle is still below that which is necessary to achieve what the intergovernmental panel on climate change says we need to achieve to reduce them you know to, to keep global warming to reduce uh, you know to within 1.5 degrees c and not only that the the special report that the ipcc put out in in 2018 says that we have 10 years to do that and so these you know more emissions reductions than we're experiencing right now we need to institute those level of changes every year for the next 10 years to, to stay within the, the sort of threshold that they're talking about. So, so this, you know, I, I think COVID is really, um, it, it, you know, is a whole bunch of things to us. It's, it's, it's sort of a warning. It's a lesson. It's an example. You know, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of ways of looking at it. Speaking of emissions, air quality, that's on everybody's mind right now. And I was just looking at an article showing these images of certain cities across the world, um, comparing a 2018 image to a 2020 image. And you just see, you know, far less smog, clear blue skies. Uh, Philadelphia health officials just released a report about air quality in the city this week, saying that we've reached the lowest level of air pollution in decades. Is this a factor from social distancing or are there other things at play here? It's important to state that this is, of course, a factor. It's related to our shift in our radical, sudden shift in lifestyle, less mobility, uh, less consumption, less demand. Uh, and all of that improves air quality and reduces emissions. But this isn't the way that we want to get there, right? I mean, you know, it, it, we need to, and I guess it goes back to my comment earlier that you can't divorce these sort of environmental indicators from other factors. You know, this COVID-19 crisis is going to trigger a recession. It's going to trigger, it, it, the impacts of COVID-19 have been disproportionately high on those who were already suffering 
um, and we're already vulnerable and already uh, disproportionately exposed to other kinds of risks. And so, you know, you can't say that, well, a pandemic is good in some sense because it's reduced emissions. We need to reduce emissions. We need to improve air quality. We need to try to make permanent some of these, uh, some of the positive environmental impacts of, of this, this lifestyle change. But we can't do that by uh, exacerbating and the inequities in society or, or, or uh, sort of making permanent um, the, the sort of devastating economic impacts that this event is having on the lives of many people. So the question to, in my mind is how do we use this as sort of a call to action? We look at, hey, look, we can from one moment to the next shift our lifestyle. We can start working from home. We can, yes, there's been bumps in the road. We realize that not all uh, not all families have access to Wi-Fi or have computers. We found out that there are lots of communities. We knew this ahead of time, but there are lots of individuals who are essential workers who can't be home with their kids while their kids have to go to school. And so, so there's been a lot of sort of bumps and difficulties and challenges associated with this. But nevertheless, we have globally um, instigated a massive change in lifestyle in very short order and we're now beginning to see how that change in lifestyle can actually shift the environment, you know, the, the, the sort of characteristics of the environment in which we live. You know, after Sandy, New Jersey, there was a HUD-funded advertising campaign, which was stronger than the storm. We're, we're, we're seeing very quickly that it's very hard to be stronger than COVID, right? So that's not an appropriate response. Um, the... Um, Sandy also was a you know big discussion about building back better, and and that 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 sort of phrase build back better is built into some international frameworks on disaster risk reduction, but building back better um, you know we have to be careful about what we're building back. We don't want to build back the same systems that created the environmental degradation, the huge imp, uh, you know huge levels of emissions, the climate change and the sort of societal inequities that we have experienced to date. We want to build something new. We want to, we want to um, bounce forward as uh, environmental activist in New York City, Eddie Bautista, talked about after Sandy. We want to move forward into a new reality. And, um, you know, there's a lot of thoughts that, uh, that many people are putting forward on, on what that new, what that response, what that stimulus, what that new future, that new vision uh, should look like, both from uh, an environmental standpoint, but then uh, as importantly with respect to the policies and the, the, uh, the, the sort of uh, physical systems and urban systems and social systems that we build to, to get there. There is sort of an irony that this is all falling on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. And as you mentioned, some of the uh, Trump administration's uh, rollbacks. Um, what do you think needs to happen in order for these short-term effects to become long-term effects? You know, of course, that approach to relaxing, uh, relaxing environmental standards is not the correct approach. And I also think it is not the correct approach to jump to an economic stimulus that rewards those who created the outcomes that we know very well were not, um, you know, not desirable. Um, 
I, I think that what we need is a, a very big and comprehensive plan that um, looks broadly at infrastructure, urban systems, society in, in one sort of interconnected system. And, you know, my colleague Mimi Scheller from Drexel talks about radicalizing and democratizing the building of infrastructure and urban systems. Um, in, in, in my opinion, we need to be cognizant now of some of these cross-sectoral dependencies that, we, that, that COVID has, has demonstrated to us. I mean, we've seen how, um, you know, changes in, in, in COVID has impacts on public transit, has impacts on education, has impacts on, um, you know, sort of personal uh, feelings of isolation, et cetera. So we need to, we need to think about how um, systems in, in the urban environment are connected to one another uh, and avoid these sort of cross-sectoral uh, dangerous dependencies and also externalities. So, you know, we, we do certain things and we don't, we're not necessarily cognizant of the fact that they are uh, generating negative impacts elsewhere. So we want to think about how all of these different systems that constitute a nation, a city, uh, infrastructure, a society work together. Um, I think we want to incentivize and create a lot of public investment in the things that we need and want. Uh, or environmental outcomes are improved when you don't produce pollution. Once you produce pollution, then you have to clean it up and you've added a step and you've added uh, costs. So pollution prevention is a big piece of that. Um, demand reduction. So a lot of people have realized that there are some aspects from work, of working from home that they actually like. And that, you know, you've probably heard a lot of people are saying, hey, I'm actually m more productive than I was previous, previously. So there's a lot of things there about thinking about um, what does that mean? What, you know, how can we... Um, in, in other ways as well, reduce the demand for resources that, when they're produced, produ you know, generate emissions and negative outcomes. And then I think we want to up the ante significantly on green jobs. You know, so green jobs has been, in the past, there's lots of things that have been talked about in the context of green jobs. And I think there were some federal studies that were saying that green jobs, you know, going back 10 years or so, you know, really couldn't. Uh, achieve a livable wage in, in, in the ways that they were being discussed. Um, you know, we can't just be talking about insulating windows and, and cleaning up trash. I think what we really need is to take all of these people who are now, this unprecedented quantity of people who are now looking for work, and put them to work doing the things that, uh, that we need. So we need low-carbon jobs. We need uh, jobs for the people who, who need the work most, and there, you know, there's been many people who've been traditionally left out of the workforce, um, people with technical skills, people who live in dense urban environments. We want to put them to work doing the type of work that creates this, this sort of new green economy that, uh, that we've all been talking about. Uh, and then I think, you know, if you look at it from a climate perspective, you know, climate change is still there. Climate change is still something that we need to think about. And there are certain sectors, the power sector, the building sector, the transportation sector. These are the main sectors that determine our greenhouse gas emissions profile. Let's put people to work in those sectors, in low carbon jobs. You know, in the power sector, um, you know, we can look at all kinds of renewables, but then also distributed storage of energy, 
um, smart infrastructure, all of the things that we need to uh, do distributed energy generation to reduce this dangerous dependencies in between uh, different sectors. Um, buildings, for example, I mean, energy efficiency and all kinds of supply chain decisions associated with residential and commercial building sectors, um, building affordable housing, transit-oriented planning. These are things we've always known. People need to be put to work right now. Let's think about how to restructure the building sector. Transportation is responsible for a third of emissions in the United States. Um, you know, we really are looking for ways of um, shifting some of the, uh, you know, some of the transportation decisions we've been making away from uh, automobile uh, transport. Now that oil prices are at such a low, I mean, this is an opportunity to, uh, A, increase revenue for this sort of post-COVID response, uh, and B, minimize impact on, um, on, on, on folks who actually need to pay for gasoline by increasing gas taxes right now. Um, when energy prices are low, we can generate revenue for some of these initiatives and, and also in the long term sort of promote this transition away from uh, carbon intensive mobility and, you know, to some of the other ways of uh, getting around, promoting ride sharing in places where it's appropriate, promoting public transit, uh, in, in, in especially in contexts where public transit systems are now suffering. So, you know, there's 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 a lot of ways to to think about this um, that are, I think, quite exciting from an environmental standpoint, but also from an economic uh, standpoint and from the point of view of reducing inequity and promoting inclusion of uh, of folks in in this in this sort of potentially exciting post covid uh, green economy that we could be creating. Yeah, there's definitely a bigger picture there than just hey, air quality is definitely much better right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, air quality is much better right now, and that's a great thing. And traffic is reduced, and it's the streets are clear. And, you know, if it wasn't for social distancing uh, requirements, you know, you could be spending more time playing in front of your house if you're a kid. Um, you know, so there, there, there's a lot there. There's wildlife sightings. Um, you know, there have been all kinds of interesting environmental uh, impacts of this. But again, we have to look at those as, you know, the, the COVID is not the way to get to those positive uh, environmental uh, changes. We need to, we need to look at this as, as an indication that we can improve the environment. We can create more of what we would like to see in the environment. We can adjust our behavior in very rapid ways to get to those kinds of outcomes. So we want a massive shift in policy and our economic systems to get us to these positive environmental outcomes. But the positive environmental outcomes are possible. That to me is like the main take home message here. We can reduce our emissions. It's very ironic to me, um, you know, Drexel is a, uh, an observer for the UNFCCC uh, the the international uh, negotiations uh, around climate change. And I've gone, starting in 2015, each year to the Conference of the Parties, the COP. This last one was in Madrid. The COP, the 2020 COP, um, was supposed to be in Glasgow. And as you know, um, it's been postponed. 
But what, what's really interesting about this and ironic in some sense is that 2020, the Paris Climate Agreement was 2015. 2020 was supposed to be the year that nations, the parties to the Paris Climate Agreement, and the U.S. is still in until um, sometime this fall when the Trump administration can make permanent our removal. But until that point, we are still in. Um, the parties were supposed to be upping their nationally determined contributions to emissions reductions. And um, as of the COP that just occurred in December in Madrid, it was not looking good. The nations were disagreeing and the level, what the, the term that's used is the level of ambition that they were are expressing in the international negotiations about how much further they could go in reducing their emissions was modest to say the least. And the irony here is that since December, there's been this massive reduction in emissions that would not have, was, did not appear like it was on the horizon from the traditional status quo negotiations that were occurring at that event. And so along comes COVID and those emissions reductions, this is going to be the, this is going to be the greatest reduction in emissions, I believe, since post-World War II. So the emissions reductions are possible. We can do it if we restructure things. It's just that what we did with doing it as a response to COVID is not ideal. We want to now take some of these improvements in, 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 in air quality and emissions reductions and environmental outcomes, and we want to make them permanent while restructuring the economy to better serve those uh, to to serve all, but uh, above all, those who um, have been were disproportionately left out of the economy that got us here. And depending on if Americans, businesses, uh, people around the world revert back to what they were doing once this pandemic is over. Yeah, I mean that that's that's I think the risk. The risk here is that, and if you look at some of the policies the Trump administration has been talking about, the risk here is that. Uh, the knee-jerk desire to improve uh, the economy will be to put money into the same sectors that were part of the pre-COVID economy, uh, incentivizing, you know, high carbon, you know, the oil and gas industry, for example, um, you know, putting it, putting uh, stimulus into those sectors, uh, recreating uh, certain. Uh, patterns of mobility that we know uh, triggered uh, traffic and air quality impairment. And, you know, the the urge to act quickly globally could um, could trigger those types of policies. And that would be that would be tragic. That would be a missed opportunity, to say the least. Um, I think what I'm seeing, though, that's very interesting is that it doesn't look like COVID is just going to end, uh, you know, next month or next week or next year. It looks like what's going to happen is a transition from total shutdown where we are now to gradual reopening in certain places of certain sectors. And so that's this gives us the opportunity to adaptively envision the future of those sectors in those places. And, you know, I, I do think that people should reflect on whether they want to return uh, to the old way of doing things. In other words, are we destined to replicate the things that we don't want from the past or through our will, 
and our hard work and our creativity? Can we create a future that um, is hinted to by some of these positive environmental indicators, but that comes about through deliberate changes to our policy, uh, to our decisions, to our physical infrastructure, our you know, and, and our behavior. Uh, I, I think that's really the, the challenge to all of us is to think about how do we construct a future that we want, and let's use COVID as uh, you know as the instigator of of, of the, that visualizing process. Right. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. That's it for this episode of KYW In Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area or how it's affecting you, subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.